Der ene, der betyder noget, det er her jeg vidt i lang tid, så der ikke være at gøre noget, det har jeg lige fundet i døf. Okay, okay, stop joking around and now read the actual first sentence in an actual language. You're listening to Outside of a Dog, where we decide whether great literature is actually any good. Hello and welcome to, what is this called again? Outside of a Dog, yes, boy, it's been some time, hasn't it? It's, it's, it's a podcast, I think, where we talk into this microphone about... Literature? Yes, exactly. Yes, yeah, sorry for our absence. Uh, we have realized the irony of saying that our next book would be nothing and then releasing nothing for close to a month. Our apologies, but at least we had a literary reason because Jonas was all involved in his theatre production. So much for that. That also meant nothing. That hurts. I, I spent seven months and literally poured my blood, sweat and tears into that production. But... Unfortunately, you're right. But here we are again. Uh, it is a beautiful day in June and we are talking about Nothing by Janne Teller. A book that is often described as a nihilist novel for children. The book tells the story of a group of Danish school children. One of them, Pierre Anton, one day declares in class that he realized that nothing means anything or Everything means nothing. And that he will not go to school anymore, but rather spend his days sitting in the plum tree and spouting philosophical messages at the other children. Now, the other kids don't like that too much, and they try to get him out of that tree, partly because he's annoying as hell, partly also because some of them seem to notice that he may be right. The way they finally resolve to get him out of the tree is... By creating a heap of meaning, collecting all the things that mean the most to them, to show Pierre Anton that there is actually things in the world that mean something. However, the whole thing spirals out of control rather quickly. And in the end, it's not just meaning that is lost. Janetella started life quite far away from literature. She was trained as an economist and in fact worked for the United Nations and the European Union for quite some time before focusing entirely on fiction writing in the mid-90s. She published several novels, but nothing is by far the most popular and successful one. It was actually published in Denmark in 2000 and it had a rough start. Um, you will often hear that it was banned. By whom? That is not really certain. Maybe it also just sounds really good. But slowly people started realizing that there was something special about it. And since then it has gone on to great success. It is read in schools throughout Europe, not really in the US I think. Uh, it has been turned into an opera and it is quite often performed on stage as well. To complete things, we should mention the book was published in Danish as well. The original title was Intet. And the quote we read in the beginning is my poor approximation of Danish. In its English translation, that quote would sound something like this. Nothing matters. I have known that for a long time, so nothing is worth doing. I just realized that. So, as you can see, the topic of nihilism, of believing in nothing, is really central to the book, even starts it off. And that is a surprising topic, maybe, for young adult fiction. Jonas, is this the reason why you chose it? Because this is entirely different from what you would expect from young adult fiction. Partly, yes. I read the book in 2010, when it came out. When I was 20, turning 21, actually. And it completely floored me. The fact that a 
children's book or young adult book could rattle me so profoundly and could deal with such disturbing themes really impressed me. But you said it's surprising for a young adult book aimed at 13, 14, 15 year olds. But is it? Because I think it is just very realistic. People that age ask those questions, have those insights. And I certainly know that when I was 14, 15, reading L'Etranger and The Sufferings of Young Werther and feeling very hoi polloi about my highbrow literary tastes, I came to some similar conclusions and I was not unlike this boy called Pierre Anton. And that is why I want to start with him. Pierre Anton is the central figure, really, though he's most marked by his absence. He's there at the beginning of the novel, but then he's this presence, this voice from off-screen who sits in a plum tree and throws plums at his fellow pupils, saying, oh no, I just throw them, I don't mean to hit you, and reminding them that everything is vanity, nothing has any point. When I first read the book, and I suppose most young people reading the book, most 14, 15-year-olds, will think that Pierre Anton has some insight. That's certainly how it's presented in the novel. He has some insight, he knows some deeper truth. But would you agree with that, Christian? Well, you're already posing the question in a certain tone that you would expect me to answer differently. And I think, actually, Pierre Anton has certain things in common with Jon Snow. He knows nothing. This is a book about, I don't know, how old are they? 13, 14? Seventh grade, so 13, 14, I guess. And it is, to a certain degree, also aimed at readers in that age range. When I first read the novel, it was about the same time, so I was already quite a bit older than that. And even then, I realized that Pierre Anton is mainly a dick. I only realized that now that I reread it, uh, six years later. I think the book also wants us to see that he's a dick. I think that is one of the good things about it, actually, that it doesn't offer neat solutions, at least with regard to how to judge Pierre Anton and how to judge the reaction of the pupils. Because Pierre Anton might be this figure like the lantern carrier in Nietzsche's parable of God who's dead, this kind of figure of speaking the truth and so on. But on the other hand, he's just a kid and he is like these obnoxious 14, 15 year olds like we probably were. Who read uh, Camus and Goethe for fun and... And realize certain truths and suddenly they know more than the rest and they're very smug about that. So I think that is actually quite a nice portrayal of that kind of figure. And his classmates, they don't know how to react to that. But that doesn't mean that Pierre Anton is the sole purveyor of truth, so to say. It's also interesting, while he is the main character, the perspective, the narrative point of view is one of his classmates, a girl named Agnes. And she seems to have a strange position because on the one hand, she's part of that collective reacting to Pierre Anton's provocation and reacting in an entirely inappropriate way. On the other hand, there are also some insights into what she's thinking. And there are some of the truths of Pierre Anton that strike a chord with her. So I think that's a good way of seeing that, that for these young people who have had a certain view on life so far and suddenly realize that maybe things are not like they seem, that some things simply seem to be true, others simply are lies, 
but it's never that easy. So I like that perspective on both Pierre Anton as the nihilist, who is actually not that much of a nihilist, come to think of it. Or if he is a nihilist, he's the obnoxious kind who doesn't really know what to do with that. He's not the kind of nihilist that goes around dropping ferrets into your bathtub, that's true. Uh, you already compared Pierre Anton to the lantern carrier in Nietzsche. To close the cycle of pretentiousness, I, I actually was reminded of probably the shallowest cut you can do uh, in Western philosophy. I was uh, reminded of Plato's parable of the cave. He is the philosopher who has gone out and has discovered the truth. And when he tries to bring it to the other people locked up in the cave, they beat him with sticks and stones and kill him. And that's what they attempt at first. Before they build up this pile of meaning, they throw stones up at Pierre Anton sitting in the tree. And I have to commend the novel for that, that it has shown me a new side to the parable of the cave. You know, maybe the philosopher kind of had it coming. That is a very good point, because I think what nothing mainly is, is not a psychologically realist portrayal of children or young adults growing up and realizing certain things. It is, to a large degree, a philosophical parable, an allegory for something. Many of the things are not supposed to be realistic, but they are supposed to mean something, ironically, you might say. And this realization of things meaning or not meaning something and what gives them meaning and this realization of certain truths not being true, this is portrayed here in a very archetypical way. And I think that is the book's great strength, but also its greatest weakness, because things are really, really abstract. Let's talk about the nature of the book as a parable, because it gets quite unrealistic and quite extreme. The things that they're forced to put on this pile of meaning that they create in this abandoned warehouse get more and more extreme. It starts with our narrator having to put a pair of sandals on there. Well, okay... It goes on to a boy having to steal his father's Danish flag that is all his pride. Okay, maybe a bit more iffy. It goes on to grave robbing, rape and mutilation. And it is described very harrowingly. They cut off the finger of Jan Johan, a boy who is very good at playing the guitar. And interestingly, the way it's told to us how good he is at playing the guitar by saying that he can play Beatles songs so well that you cannot tell the difference between him and the originals. And have you ever heard a more depressing, stale, middle-brow, uninspired talent? Oh, you can imitate the Beatles. Great job! I'm not saying he deserved having his finger cut off, but... You kind of that, That's one of those points where I sympathize with Pierre Anton again. Like, oh my god, all of you teenagers are so obnoxious. Just go ahead and build your horrible pile of shit. But... As I say, things get quite extreme. And you already said this is, for you, one of the weak points of the book. And I know several people who actually refuse to read it or to engage with it because they say, I don't want to read a book where... Uh, I don't want to read a book where teenagers torture and mutilate each other. But I think this is all done in service of the message. And it's a very fairly obvious message that these children really go to extreme lengths of violence first against someone else who says something unpalatable to them, and then against each other in this vain attempt to seek meaning. I agree, but I think that the point then is slightly misguided. Because this is not really about nihilism. I read a, quite a good quote on the internet about that, that what Pierre Anton does is he's not showing the meaninglessness of life to these 
students. He's showing them their own cruelty. This is a bit like Lord of the Flies, this kind of notion that people are inherently cruel if they are left to their own devices, if they are without moral guidance from some overarching meaning. But this is already a step beyond. This is something else. What Pierre-Anton does is basically provoke them into doing such things. And I think, for me at least, when I read this, I was disappointed to a certain degree. I would have thought that the scenario could be much more extreme. Because despite their cruelty, I think these pupils actually still find meaning in the whole thing. It's not a very nice meaning, it's not a very good meaning, but they still find meaning. What they do in the end, and not to spoil too much, but they kill Pierre-Anton. They kill him. And it's not a solution, but for them, it's a certain kind of meaning. That's the last step they can do. And I think this is more about nothing in a sense of moral degradation or nothing that you can do or nothing that means anything in a moral sense. But it's not necessarily nihilism with regards to existence. So again, this parable, I think it works very well when it comes to the ambiguity of the perspective that you're right, these children do extremely cruel things. But I think that it's not necessarily always to the point of this abstract scenario of nothing means anything. You said that they eventually do find meaning, maybe not a nice meaning, but some kind of meaning. And a part of that is killing Pierre Anton. I would disagree with that because I think they do kill Pierre Anton, but it is completely pointless. They burn him on the pile of meaning and then they all keep a bit of the ash to remind them. And the book actually ends with our narrator telling us that she still has a matchbox full of the ash of the abandoned warehouse and the pile of meaning. And she knows that this somehow has meaning and that meaning is something serious that you should not joke about. And it ends with the words, isn't it, Pierre Anton? Isn't it? That's not a triumph. That's not finding meaning. That's clinging on to the idea that you have found meaning when actually you haven't. I read this ending as Pierre Anton triumphing in death. I would disagree again. On the one hand, because I think maybe it's misguided, but at least it is some kind of meaning and it is confirmed in the end. On the other hand, as we said, Pierre Anton's position is ambiguous as well. He is killed because he actually steps down from the plum tree. And he takes the time to ridicule the children for their pile of meaning. Again, that is not necessarily a position of showing the meaninglessness of life. This is a position of driving the point home, of saying, Haha, you're stupid, I'm clever. And I think for that reason that Pianto doesn't triumph in the end. He was not more right or more correct than the children. He just suffered for it in the end. But again, there you might also say, well, he had it coming. He kind of did. Even if you disagree on the details of the merits of the book, um, let us come to the question whether or not this is suitable for young adults. Whether or not it has been banned, we don't know. I assume that several local libraries in the US will not be glad to have this on their shelves. Should this be a book that young people should be encouraged to read? Um, not coming to final judgments yet, but is this appropriate for young adult fiction? I would say absolutely. I mean, much of young adult fiction deals with growing up and realizing that life is not as simple as it seems. Much of young adult fiction usually is more introspective, maybe. It's more personal, psychological, coming to terms with certain things, but in the end succeeding. Here you don't have that solution, but it still portrays that realization, that process of growing up, 
realizing that not all is good, not all has meaning very well. And I think if I think back to the books I read as a child and young, a youth, I think this is not more cruel or more traumatizing than other books. Maybe just more direct, less about any literary pretense, very direct in its message, what it is about, a parable. But I still think that young adults and even older children can handle it quite well. They're going to ask these questions anyway, so you might as well give them a book that helps them ask these questions. And a book that tells them the harsh truth that sometimes there are no answers. No yes and no answers and that you have to find your own answers and somehow muddle through. And I also think that the nice trick of this kind of collective of children that have certain individual traits, but still they mainly, apart from Pierre Anton, act as a collective. I think that's very good to be discussed, for example, in a classroom environment where the children can identify with those people and not be grossed out too much by the sordid details and identify too much to a certain degree. You can talk about the cruelty of a group of people m more easily than the cruelty of a single person that is somehow equated to you. But let us come from our judgments for young people to our final judgments. Is this worth your time? Is it actually any good? I think you will not be surprised to hear that I say yes. I've read this book three times now, twice in my early 20s, now once in my mid-20s, and all the time I realize new things about it. This was also the first time where I realized that at the end of the book, our narrator says that this was eight years ago. So hang on, now she's actually just 21, 22 years old. The age I was when I read the book for the first two times. And I, at that time, felt very much like the characters in that book. And I'm guessing, in another 10 years' time, I will think about it differently still. So this book is a reminder that even when you're a young adult or an adult, you can still grow, and therefore it is well worth reading. It's also no surprise that I'm a bit more skeptical. I don't think this is a necessary book. I still think that this is a good book. It's an odd duck. It has many things. It's very clear and at the same time it's very ambiguous, which makes it really interesting to read and to discuss, as you might have noticed. Is it worth your time? I think so, yes. Is it necessary to read? I don't think so. So I already mentioned there might be other books that deal with the same topic in a different way. Jonas, what is your recommendation? What else can deal with the big nothing of meaninglessness? Well, whenever it comes to meaninglessness, I'm tempted to recommend The Myth of Sisyphus, a book that tremendously helped me deal with the fact that we live in an uncaring, cold, hopeless and meaningless universe. I think you recommended that once already, which just goes to show that we talk a lot about nihilism on this podcast. Yes. So I didn't want to recommend it again. And I thought... Hmm, what fits? What is Danish? What is about the pointlessness of life? And, you know, for lack of a better term, melancholy. What is by my favorite author? So I thought I would recommend Hamlet, the Prince of Denmark, who basically deals with nihilism as well, and who basically expresses my view of the universe when he says, if it be now, tis not to come. If it be not to come, it will be now. If it be not now, yet it will come. The readiness is all. This is not to imply that uh, there is such a thing as destiny that you should just wait for and lean back and not do anything about your life. That's a hateful statement. 
But, you know, there are some things that are beyond your control, and you don't need to worry about them. Is there meaning? Is there a point to life? Probably not. Eh, whatever. But that is much too obvious, so I'm not recommending Hamlet, of course. Instead, I'm recommending a film. Surprise, surprise. This is also aimed at teenagers, and it is a lot more positive. It is a lot more funny, definitely. And it is also about that phenomenon that you talked about, the phenomenon of groups and violence being exerted both from individuals and from groups. But maybe in a more accessible way and maybe in a more life-affirming way that, hey, you know, we can all work together and figure this thing out. So my recommendation for this week is Mean Girls, a film written by and not starring but featuring Tina Fey, But it also has Lindsay Lohan in it, Rachel McAdams, lots of great people, lots of talent on and off screen. It is hilariously funny and it has a really good message of basically, hey, be nice to each other. And if that is not a message that I would endorse to give to teenagers, I don't know what is. I won't do any fake out recommendations. There's only one book that came into my mind and it is also Scandinavian, though not Danish, but Norwegian. And it is also philosophical by an author who is infamous for writing about philosophy. The author is Jostein Garda. And the book is no, not Sophie's World. The book is The Solitaire Mystery. It is also a young adult novel. It is also partly a parable. But it is also a great fantasy novel. And it deals with nihilism, though not in the same stark and direct way. That Teller does, but in a more in a more magical, realist way. The power of imagination is the one thing that kind of makes us deal with the meaninglessness of life, that helps us cope with it. So if Pierre Anton had been less of a dick, he wouldn't have been sitting in that plum tree spouting faux philosophical notions. He would have been telling a story. And this is what the solitaire mystery is all about. This is quite a polarizing book. Maybe you have a very strong opinion on it. If you do, let us know. You can write us an email at outsideofadogcast at gmail.com. More importantly, please, please review us on iTunes. Leave a message there. Give us any number of stars. doesn't matter. Preferably five, though. You can also find us on Facebook. You can also find us on Twitter at Outside of a Hound. And we are back. So if you were afraid that we had died or if you were looking forward to hearing about us dying, well, no. But in two weeks' time, we will have yet another episode. But what will it be about, Christian? Nothing. I mean, we will continue with the topic of nihilism and we will continue with the topic of cruelty. I'm very sorry to say. But we will hear from someone else. This time, it's not going to be a novel. It's going to be a play. Crave by Sarah Kane. Thank you very much for listening. For more information, visit outsideofadogcast.com. Should I cut that out? No. I hate theater people. I'm just saying, have you ever played gay chicken? Do you want to play gay chicken? <laughs> ah! You're very bad at playing gay chicken. <laughs> I know how to play gay cock. Cut that out. Cut that out. <laughs> we're still here. We're not queer, but we love it. And if we were queer, that would be okay. We just happen not to be. Gay chicken. <laughs> Now I have to leave the gay chicken in. Yes.